So welcome to Unconventional Ways, a kinky podcast. Today we're going to be joined by Farrell Rose. Um, she's going to, Farrell Rose will talk about journey through kink as well as primal on play. Um, you want to give us a little information about yourself, Farrell Rose? Yeah, sure. Um, you can also call me Maggie. That's usually what I go by in the scene as well. Um, so it's just an easier nickname, but um. I'm 23, based out of Boston right now. Um, I'm Hispanic, Puerto Rican, and Ecuadorian. Um, been in the Boston kink scene since um, maybe it's been like five years now, I'd say. Um, I've got some experience in like the international scene, going to a couple of munches when I was in um, Northern Italy for a period of time. Um, and yeah, like you said, I've got most of my experience in um, primal play, and I've recently been getting into um some more edgy things like needles knives uh breath play but primal play is kind of the umbrella that I feel best summarizes some of my favorite kinks or sort of where my kink is focused mentally and psychologically so I think that's a, a pretty solid summary of it so um what was your introduction to BDSM and King prior prior to you discovering primal play? Um, I would say most of my introduction was through research. I'm a very sort of organized and logical person in terms of the way that my brain works. So when I was younger and when I was underage, I was digesting a lot of media and content online when it comes to safety resources. Uh, podcasts, movies, TV shows, uh, you know, blogs, online forums, kind of discovering what, what all of this was when I was pretty young. And, you know, my curiosity was piqued when I realized that kink was something that could be done ethically and consensually. Mm-hmm. Um, when I try to think about an introduction, I would say the concept of power dynamics is kind of where the root was uh planted for me and being intrigued by the imbalance of power dynamics because my growing up and learning you know the concepts of of very basic sort of feminism when I was really young kind of conflicted with my intrigue uh, when it comes to imbalanced power dynamics so I had a lot of internal sort of moral wrestling to deal with when it came to that you know learning how to be an independent young feminist figuring out my gender and sexuality and all of that good stuff and then realizing that I also found it really cool to think about an imbalance in power dynamics and realizing that doesn't make me a terrible person so I think that thought process is what started it all and then like I said research learning reading thinking and I didn't actually do any exploring of activities or doing the things until I came to Boston and, and was of age. Um, what age were you when you started? Like you said, you started researching on your own and then you kind of saw yeah. that there was able to do it in a, a Yeah, more... so I mean, I like, so for example, I got my first like kind of flip phone in fifth grade. And then I would say in terms of consistent internet access for a computer at home, maybe like end of middle school, Um, beginning of high school was when I really had that unlimited access to doing all of my research. So maybe it started when I was in like eighth grade-ish 
in terms of research and stuff. And then throughout high school, I think is when I really started gathering up all of that information and, and compiling all of the different resources that I had to figure out what kink and BDSM was and the concepts of, you know, risk aware consensual kink and the nuances of negotiation the literal kinks and skill sets that you can find within different types of BDSM. So maybe I would say it started around eighth grade. And again, this was all research, not because I, um, I, I was like a, a pretty self-conscious young person. I, I didn't really do much exploring of my sexuality when I was underage. So I truly was, you know, sitting at home with my mom drinking hot chocolate instead of going to the prom. I was not a party person at all. I wasn't, you know, having wild nights in high school, experimenting. It was really in front of my computer, reading things or listening to a podcast. So it was kind of all in my head and in my brain. And then when I came to Boston and had my own independent life, that's when it started to translate into parties and actually doing the fun things. You spoke about you having some experience on the international scene in Northern Italy. Mm -hmm. um, so during that time, what was, so you got this experience, was it something more eye-opening um, on the international scene versus um, kink in the USA? Because like I, I lived abroad as well. So it was, oh, it nice. was yeah, it was different understanding people's, under, people's reaction to BDSM kink and sexuality in a European or global sense versus here at home in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. Can I ask where you were when you uh, lived abroad? I was in Germany. Okay, awesome. Nice. Yeah, I've only visited Germany a couple of times and I don't think I ended up going to any um, kink events there or anything. Um, just a couple of like, you know, vanilla clubs and things like that. Um, but yeah, in Northern Italy, I went to a couple of good munches, um, met some cool people, was invited to a few play parties. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it to them. Um, but it was really cool just to see the differences in what specific kinks seemed to do like dominate the scene. So like there was a very heavy interest in Shibari there, which was cool to see. Um, I mean, culturally, I think a lot of the differences translated to the kink scene. So whatever was different in terms of vanilla culture would translate to kink culture in terms of the differences in country. Um, but it was really nice to have that feeling of authenticity in my experience because I, the munches that I went to were in Italian, so I didn't have to sort of translate things. Um, I got to practice my Italian, which was nice. And I feel like people are just a bit more at ease when they don't have to think in a second language. So I felt like I was getting a pretty honest experience with them about, you know, how people interact at munches and things like that. But it was pretty positive. I, I wish I would have had more time um, and I do plan on returning. So hopefully it'll be nice and I get to do that and participate in that scene. You're, you're had some very interesting lifestyle scenes and events. Um, so hopefully you'll be able to get back there and to experience some things once you know travel international travel opens back up and people are yeah exactly. feel safer to do events yeah yeah um so you spoke on feminism is has there been any, any internal um push or pull between feminism and kink for you yeah absolutely i feel like that was the primary uh, difficulty for me mentally because i like i said i'm 
in my head, I'm an anxious person. I overthink things generally. So when it came to figuring out what my morals were as a person growing up and what I believed in and what was important to me and how I wanted to present myself in this world, it was a pretty um, impactful sort of struggle that I had in terms of figuring out how to make my kinks ethical or how to understand that kink can be ethical because on surface level as a younger person when I'm learning what's right and wrong and I know what I believe in realizing that I'm intrigued by or turned on by these concepts that are not ethical if they were to be done in a non-consensual way is really scary honestly and I didn't really know why I was intrigued by these things I was just talking to a friend recently about this um same concept with I know it sounds terrible but my I used to watch a lot of Law and Order SVU and I felt like such a terrible terrible human being for being intrigued by these storylines and it turns out I was just a normal person who's into consensual non-consent but of course that's kind of a difficult thing to realize when you're too young to realize that that is a kink so being intrigued by these storylines did not mean I'm a bad feminist, did not mean that I am a bad person that enjoys other people being truly harmed. It just meant that I had a kink that I didn't realize was a thing. Um, but yeah, that was really difficult for me to wrap my head around, which is why I think the education and the research clarified things so much for me, because I realized that, you know, as long as you have autonomy over your own body and you sort of reconcile what the power dynamics are societally when you're negotiating things with someone else that you can make these seemingly awful things consensual and a whole lot of fun so being a being a feminist as well as a kinkster um have you engaged in or been or have been asked by anyone to engage in patriarchal type of king or misogynistic type of kinks because a yeah. lot of this is very much um rooted in that at some point um yep. and how, how did yeah. you handle that yeah yeah no definitely um and that's something that I still think about day to day it's not something that I have figured out completely or that doesn't cause me to have any sort of concern it's still something I think about every time I engage in that sort of kink um and it also becomes more complicated when I think about the intersectionality of my being a queer brown person as well. So when I'm looking at kinks that are based in misogyny, but are consensual, there's a lot of overlapping dynamics that I have to take into account. So I mean, when I would play with more of, you know, cis men, there was kind of the straightforward concept of, okay, you're playing with misogyny in a consensual way, and that's fun, and you can do it safely. Um, but you have to kind of combine that with the fact of, okay, who are, who's the audience that you're really dealing with? How many people of color are really in your local scene, which unfortunately is not many here in Boston. So you've got the added power dynamic of, of dealing with a lot of white men. And then when you come to terms with the fact that I'm very queer and I am not playing with as many cis men recently and all of the other gender identities are also very, you know, oppressed in similar ways as I am, how are you then playing with misogyny for both of your advantages when neither of you are cis men or cis women or whatever the case is? So 
it's still something that is a lot of fun to play with when you go about it with the right intention, but it's still difficult. I still have moments where I feel like maybe I'm being a terrible person. Maybe I'm oppressing myself in some way, but then I have to center myself again. Um, but I don't know. I, I think playing with um, a lot more queer people recently has been really good for me in terms of feeling super safe and super seen. It's kind of like a constant internal struggle, but also yeah. finding finding other queer individuals to play with and do sessions with has given you um, more freedom to actually be yourself and Absolutely. to explore more in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it clarified for me what I find important in a person, you know, compulsory heterosexuality is very strong. So the mm-hmm. feelings of bi erasure that I had growing up were, you know, stuck around longer than I would have hoped they did. But now that I feel much more comfortable pursuing people that are not just cis men, um, honestly, it, it makes me realize what all the great components are in any human being that I look for. And then frankly, it makes any partners that I have who are cis men that much higher quality because I, I pick out the really good ones. And then I've got all of these other queer people around me um, who I feel so safe and comfortable with as well. So it just kind of comes down to being comfortable with your identity, whatever that may be, which is not an easy thing to do, but right. it's worth especially, it. Especially in this lifestyle. <laughs> um, speaking yeah. of which, like, how do you identify... Um, pronouns gender you did say you were a brown queer um individual um mm. so um i'm a cis woman so i go by she her i've been using bisexual as my primary label um but i mean anyone in the queer community kind of knows there's quite a nuanced conversation going on about what that means to certain people what pansexuality means to certain people um for right now i've been sticking with bi i am demisexual as well um i'm solo poly so in terms of relationship orientation um that's where i'm at there um i'm trying to think of all of the other potential identifiers but yeah uh she her solo poly very queer i find myself sort of uh attracted to folks that are on the more feminine or androgynous side but you know that always has an exception when you meet that one person who's just really nice and really cute so as a brown queer slash bi identifying woman um have you had any issues of race play or been fetishized for your background in the in, in the queer space as well as outside of it, kink-wise? Yeah, um, not overtly, not to my face, luckily. I haven't had um, instances of, I guess, like macroaggressions. No one's mm-hmm. necessarily said blatantly racist things to my face. But I mean, as you probably relate to, there's plenty of microaggressions to go around and assumptions made. I mean, unfortunately, when I go into a kink space in Boston, other than a few of my close friends or a few other brown people that I've been lucky enough to meet, I'm usually one of very few brown people in the space. So there's automatically um, that perception, (laughs) like sort of preceding me. Um, I've had some 
folks very clearly fetishize me without saying so much um, or be seen as sort of the fun, young, exotic looking one without necessarily having to say that much or, you know, just finding it a worthy topic of conversation to talk about how different my hair is when it's really not that different other than it being thicker. I mean, I'm Hispanic. I have like, you know, Puerto Rican hair. So it's like long, wavy, relatively thick, but it, it's not that new or novel. And man, are white people fascinated by it. <laughs> like, I just, yeah, I it's interesting of, what um, they hook on to. Yeah, I have a lot, a lot of black female friends who get that, oh, can I touch your hair? And it's always like, yep. oh, goodness. <laughs> can I touch your hair? Oh my God, it's amazing. I wish it was like thick like yours. And to a certain extent, it's based in compliments sometimes, um, which it, it, it's kindness on the surface, but there's a lot of microaggressive things that I often have to overlook. Um, and then of course you've got your standard, you know, creepy guys in a corner who think it's nice to compare you to whatever sort of <laughs> ridiculous stereotype of like that, that I don't never know, comparing fun. the color of your skin to something. Yeah. It, it, right. But no, luckily I haven't had blatantly uh sort of racist comments made to my face. Um but I kind of go out of my way to not engage with people who I think would be likely to do that. But the microaggressions are real. The assumptions when I walk into a room are real. The not being represented in the spaces is very much a real thing. That, that's, a, that's one of the big things a lot of um, people I say, they're saying that when they attend these events or parties, the they're not really represented there. Like it's... Yep. You know, and I see more and more um, black and brown people are starting their own events, um, mm-hmm. especially play parties or munches. And they they said that they feel they have the ability to be themselves and to relax when they're actually at these events that they're curating for themselves. Um, yeah, it's shocking how much of a difference that makes. Um, I have a friend who's recently started um doing a POC munch locally. And I know there's a couple of POC munches that have been active or inactive depending on where they are in in terms of COVID, understandably. Um, But this one particular munch, I I had only gone to it once and it's amazing how much of a deep breath you can take when you realize that you're in a space with other kinky people of color. You know, you don't realize how filtered you are until you don't have to filter yourself. So just sitting with a couple of people of color who are in the king scene felt so different than all of the other munches I'm used to going to or play parties I'm used to going to where it's dozens of white people and maybe me and one other brown person you know I I get so used to it like I'm good at playing the part and it's whatever at this point in my life but when you get that experience it just dawns on you and you're like oh shit I can be myself this is amazing (laughs) Yeah, and that and that's one of the things I want with this podcast is so that people can understand, like you know, get this idea that you can, if you don't see it, you can kind of create it yourself as well, or get with some people and create that community, so that you can have these kind of events or these conversations and feel safe about it. Um, so yeah. that's that's one of the big things I really want to see come out of this. Um, so let's let's move forward. Um, can you tell us what Primal Play is and why Primal Play is actually appealing to so many people? 
Sure. So, I mean, this all goes with the caveat that I think primal play can mean and be different things to different people. So I definitely don't have a central definition for you because many people use it in different ways. But for me, I feel like primal play centers around the use of one's physical body as a tool in kink as opposed to secondary implements, you know, objects and things like, you know, a rope or a knife or whatever you want as an accessory are definitely part of primal play very commonly. But for me, what it means for me is using your hands and your grip and your strength and your body and your teeth and your mouth and your physical abilities as the tool when you're interacting with somebody. So rough body play, um, pursuit and takedown, biting, scratching, um, pressure points, joint locks, those sorts of things are what are central to primal play for me personally. You know, and some people focus more on one of those aspects than the other. But when it comes down to it, I think of it as the core feeling, you know, the primal feeling to either challenge or take down someone, pursue someone and kind of get what you want or interact with them or wrestle or kind of fight for dominance with your physical body as opposed to all sorts of, um, you know, elements of clothing or leather or paddles or whips or things like that, which are all tons of fun. But for me, primal play is just kind of focusing on what can your body do and what sensations can you cause with your body, if that makes sense. That, that makes sense. Um, so are you more of a primal predator or a primal prey? Um, definitely primal prey, although I do like to involve the element of like a fair fight. So I enjoy the struggle, the wrestling, the making it difficult for whoever is a primal predator in relation to me to necessarily win that battle. Like I will put my physical strength on the line. I've gotten stronger recently because I've been working out more. So I, I like putting in my best effort. I don't like to make myself easy prey. I don't want it to be an easy win. I don't necessarily want to lie down without a fight. And that's a lot of the fun and playfulness in primal play for me. Um, and, you know, the... <laughs> the pain that results from a, a good fight I suppose is some of the most fun in my opinion when it comes to primal play um what does it mean to you personally to identify as primal um I would say it's just a good descriptor when someone is wondering what my kink focuses on. So when I say that I am primal, I want someone to understand that the psychological aspect of being pursued and being, you know, quote unquote, forced into something or consensual non-consent, that's where my brain is at. Because I feel like when I introduce myself to people or you're getting to know people and you want to know what people's kinks are, I really want to represent myself accurately so someone understands where I'm coming from and what I get out of kink and what I look for in BDSM. 
generally and of course there's always exceptions and I love tons of other things but with primal as my main identifier I think it's just a nice summary to give someone a good impression of where my head is at so they kind of get the idea oh okay biting oh you really like using your body and that's your main source of right you know excitement and and that's where you want to get your pain from and your submission from and all of those good things from and of course I've started liking many other things over the past few years and even recently I I discover new kinks every day but it's at least a nice core like branching out point so what does a um I I guess I could say typical primal play scene looks like for you and what are some of the things that you enjoy incorporated into a primal session yeah um it's honestly rare that I dedicate a certain amount of resources and time to an extended scene. I feel like a lot of the play I engage in is with consistent friends or play partners that happens in small increments as I spend time with people. So something like a pursuit and, and takedown can be as simple as disagreeing with someone and playfully teasing them or being slightly bratty and all of a sudden you're seriously wrestling and I'm on the floor and it's unexpected or if it's planned you know something like some intense bruising and potentially breaking skin from biting um, from nails I really like the incorporation of um, knives for the sake of fear play I don't necessarily delve into breaking skin or blood play when it comes to knives yet maybe that's in my future but I don't necessarily do that yet Um, but fear play is a huge thing for me so knives bring that element in super easily um, when it comes to primal play so it's the physical interactions of challenging someone physically and almost baiting them into hurting me if that makes sense it's almost like I'm I'm pushing someone to give me the reaction I'm looking for (laughs) So I guess a little, some quasi-masochistic tendencies there, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, the, so you say you do this with people that you've done this with for a while. Is there, does it take you a while to get into a primal headspace or the, um, the people who you do these, who you play with, have a way to kind of get you there without it taking too long? I don't think it takes me too long to get into a primal headspace um, because usually the physical sensation of being thrown to the ground or grabbed really hard or physically hurt kind of gets me there pretty quickly. What takes longer is getting in a submissive headspace. So if I end up feeling submissive towards someone, that's probably going to take a little bit longer. Or if I'm edging into subspace or I have taken a lot of pain, that's kind of what needs more time for my brain to acclimate to but in terms of the playful primal struggle aspect that doesn't take too long for me um but you know the more subby head spaces where I need to be more comfortable with someone and be willing to be that sort of vulnerable with them so as I was researching a few things on so we could have a good conversation <laughs> um <laughs> I came across a few words and so we have predator prey a hunter pack alpha a mate and 
um, hierarchies and how are hierarchies and packs determined? Um, yeah, so honestly, I, I don't have much experience with um, the concept of packs for me personally and the people I interact mm -hmm. with. I, I know some people in the community who use those titles um, where those titles mean a lot to them. Um, and the impression I've gotten is that it's it can be a familial thing. It can be a friendship thing. It can be a sexual thing. There can be a hierarchy of power play. But honestly, I haven't um, used pack sort of identifiers um, for myself. I think the only terms that I usually use are uh, predator or prey to define what sort of side of the struggle someone is on in whatever instance we're talking about. Um, I honestly haven't met too many people who use primal as their primary identifier. It's usually something people might be into, but I think maybe the hierarchies and the concept of a pack or an alpha might be more common to someone whose primary identity related to being primal. And, and for me, it's not super animalistic like that. So I don't, again, maybe it'll appeal to me more in the future, but right now I haven't really um, used those kinds of ideas like, like a, a pack or an existing sort of consistent hierarchy with multiple people. It's usually just um, case by case, I guess. Yeah. And can you talk about some safety um, concerns as well as basic guidelines and consent considerations to be aware of during primal play? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, by definition or by the definition that I use personally, it's, an extremely physically demanding kink to be into um, mm. and therefore it can be incredibly dangerous depending on what um, physical limitations or existing um, cases of chronic pain or disability are but the fun thing is that I think primal play can be so loosely defined and so customizable that you can use elements of primal play regardless of what your level of sort of physical activity or, or fitness is um you know taking and and being part of classes on things like joint locks pressure points there are painful and less painful ways to do things and there are ways that you can make something standing up or sitting down so there's more or less of a risk of falling you can be easier or more stressful on your joints depending on what your comfort level is. So I would say definitely don't think that it's too hard for your body um, and try to customize it if it's something that you're into. Um, but then obviously the basic rules of safety when it comes to um, things like if you're ever piercing skin with blood play, you wanna be aware of bloodborne pathogens and being risk aware with whoever you're playing with. Um, knives obviously are something you should be taking plenty of classes in person and otherwise on before you ever really delve into it um, but if you're only dealing with your body I think the physicality of it is something that people might think requires you know being willing to totally sacrifice yourself to scratches and bruises and soreness and pain and that might not be something that's accessible to some people but it definitely doesn't have to be um, the way your primal play takes place so you know I've, I've seen a lot of friends really successfully 
use um, more comfortable forms of of masochism and you know challenging their partner physically that just focus on the areas of their body that maybe can take more pain or are fl more flexible or are stronger without having to actually throw someone down in the woods and, and deal with the, the physical ramifications of that. So um, have you incorporated any primal play in outside, like in the woods, um, going camping, going to a park, or is it mostly some so control settings at home or at a party? Mostly controlled settings, quite honestly, because I'm a wimp when it comes to like dirt and bugs. Like, okay. <laughs> I, I would straight up be doing more things outside and in the woods if I wasn't such a wimp when it comes to because like, I don't want bugs in my hair. I don't want dirt and mud on my skin, which seems really lame and kind of counterintuitive when it says when I say I'm into primal play. But honestly, I would much rather deal with hard surfaces and uncomfortable floors and furniture and things inside the house because lord knows if i see a centipede i'm i'm gone like burn the house down so i'm kind of a wimp when it comes to that uh what are, what are some misconceptions about primal play that you would like to dispel misconceptions um probably just anyone who thinks that there's a hard and fast definition you know some people think that primal play is always about that sort of pack mentality and and being really animalistic or or being into pet play where you imagine yourself as a wolf 24 7 like it absolutely can be but that's not at all what it has to be or if someone thinks that primal play has to necessarily involve an immense amount of physical pain it doesn't have to be like you could totally not be a masochist and still enjoy the physicality and sensuality of primal actions like like biting and wrestling and things like that I, I would say it's one of the most flexible labels I have experience with so I just wouldn't want anyone to think that there's a rule about how you're supposed to be primal or what you have to do to be primal um, because that's just not true you can kind of make it whatever you want and anyone who tells you otherwise is I don't know not realizing how flexible that word can be um, I guess that's that's the primary sort of maybe um, misconception I would want to dispel. So if anyone wanted to get in touch with you um, or to see any possible content you have, mm -hmm. um, do you have any social medias they can follow or? Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so. Um, it would just be on FetLife for me, even in my vanilla life. I don't really keep up any social media, honestly. So okay. I couldn't even give that to you if I wanted to. But FetLife is where I'm at. Um, I've been trying to post a little bit more in terms of um, pictures. I don't, I'm not huge on posting a lot of content, but I try to post more and more pictures of cool stuff that I'm doing at least. And I, I respond to messages on there. So I'm totally available if people have um, questions, comments, anything like that, want to get in touch, want to talk about the Boston scene. Um, my username on there is uh, feral underscore rose. So F-E-R-A-L underscore rose. Um, but yeah, and you know, you can address me as Maggie there. I think I have my name listed there as well. So that's fine. Um, but that's the primary place that you'd be able to get in touch with me is FetLife. Thank you for joining us. Um, really appreciate you giving your story and giving us some good information on primal play.
Um, this has been another episode of Unconventional Ways. Um, thank you, Maggie. And we'll, we're, I'm you. pretty sure that more people will get in touch with you about this. <laughs> thank you. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. This is awesome. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you.